We continue our study of God, our Creator, and His creative act in this creation week. And let's begin reading in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and all the way down through verse 13, the end of the third day. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth the grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. The title of this message is Day 3, Dry Land and Plant Life. Last time, we focused in on the creation of dry land and the age of that dry land. It was a blessed study. I enjoyed that focus. We'll cover that briefly and then press on to plant life. There's far more that I want to communicate to you about plant life than I can do in 60 minutes. And I do not want day three to be a part three. And so let's try to keep it concise here. Day three, dry land and plant life. Look again to Genesis chapter 1, verse 9. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now I'm going to put seas on pause. I haven't really covered the seas. We covered earth last time, but I'm going to put seas on pause until we get to the fish. And then we'll cover fish and seas at the same time, Lord willing. There's just too much here, saints. Verse 11, then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, grass, the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. In the same way, God made dry land, and it was so. By divine fiat, God made the grass and the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind by divine fiat yet again. As verse 12 records, the earth brought forth grass. God spoke and the earth obeyed. The earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning 
with the third day. What we have here is God's account of creating life, saints. Life, which is no small miracle. It is glorious. It is amazing. It is truly incomprehensible to our finite minds. We think we understand so much, but the more we study and the more I study of what we have studied, the more I'm convinced and I was already convinced of how little we know, how little we understand, and how much of what we think we understand, we soon find out, no, we didn't understand that at all. We were misunderstanding. And so I stand in awe of God's creation of life. And I want you to stand in awe of God's creation of life, starting with plants. Usually when I think of God's creation of life, I think of animals. I think of the animal kingdom. I jump right beyond plants. Plants, ah, you know, who wants salad, right? Everyone wants salad. Without salad, without plants, there could be no life. And so plant life is glorious, saints. It's glorious. God created the grass, He created the herbs, and He created the trees, and He created them all on day three, just after He created dry land. And this convolutes the supposed evolution of plants completely and entirely. But if you do any study on the supposed evolution of plants, you find out things like this. According to evolution, grass is a very recent creation of the evolutionary processes that took place over billions of years in plant life. Grass is so recent that it was created by the evolutionary processes post-dinosaur. So say the evolutionists, at least until recently, when they found grass in dinosaur dung. Which once again shows the colossal ignorance of science when it tries to look back. Remember, science is handy when you've got an observation of that which you can repeat and that which you can verify. Science is very handy for. But when you look back, it becomes speculation very quickly. And they speculated that grass was a recent creation of the evolutionary miracle in the plant world, the plant kingdom, right up until they found grass in the dung of dinosaurs very recently. And then they had to rework their whole understanding of the evolution of plants because of that one little clue left behind by a friendly dinosaur. The creation of plant life. Henry Morris says this, three main orders of plant life are mentioned here, grasses, herbs, and trees. Whether this classification corresponds to modern taxonomic nomenclature or not is irrelevant. The latter is man-made and entirely arbitrary, whereas these biblical divisions are obvious and natural. The three are intended to cover all types of plants, and these are the most obvious comprehensive categories. The term grass is intended to include all spreading ground-covering vegetation, Herbs includes all bushes and shrubs and trees, including all large woody plants, including even fruit-bearing trees. It is significant that these plants were made not as seeds, but as full-grown plants. 
whose seed was in themselves. They thus had an appearance of age. The concept of creation of apparent age does not, of course, suggest a divine deception, but is a necessary accompaniment of genuine creation. The processes operating in creation week were not the processes of the present era, but were processes of creating and making and are thus not commensurate with present processes at all. Adam was created as a full-grown man. The trees were created as full-grown trees. And the whole universe was made as a functioning entity, complete and fully developed right from the beginning. The apparent age that might be calculated in terms of present processes would undoubtedly be vastly different from the true age as revealed by the Creator. In verse 11 occurs the first mention of both seed and kind. Implanted in each created organism was a seed programmed, programmed at a genetic level, programmed to enable the continuing replication of that type of organism. The modern understanding of the extreme complexities of the so-called DNA molecule and genetic code contained in it has reinforced the biblical teaching of the stability of kinds. In other words, plants don't change from one kind to another any more than animals do. There's a stability in the genetic coding that God designed into plants and animals. Each type of organism has its own unique structure of the DNA and can only specify the reproduction of that same kind. There is a tremendous amount of variational potential within each kind, facilitating the generation of distinct individuals and even of many varieties within the kind, but nevertheless precluding the evolution of new kinds. A great deal of horizontal variation is easily possible, but no vertical changes. In other words, God designed the ability to adapt within plants and animals for survivability. It's a glorious design, but they're still of the same kind. They're able to adapt to a certain extent according to God's design, but not adapt from kind to kind, but adapt within kind for survival purposes. Dr. Morris continues, It is significant that the phrase, after his kind, occurs ten times in the first chapter of Genesis. It's as if God wanted to make a point. Whatever precisely is meant by the term kind, Hebrew men, it does indicate the limitations of variation. Each organism was to reproduce after its own kind, not after some other kind. The evolutionary dogma that all living things are interrelated by common ancestry and descent is refuted by these biblical statements, as well as by all established scientific observations made to date. You understand that? You understand that evolution teaches, not just with animals, but all life started with a simple, single cell of plant life and then became plants and animals from that singular cell. They don't believe that Animal life started from one cell and plant life from another, but all life from one cell. That was a lucky cell, folks, right? Dr. Morse finishes up here. It should also be mentioned that the formation of plants, even such complex forms as fruit trees, occurred before the creation of any form of animal life. This is, of course, quite logical, but it does flatly contradict the accepted evolutionary system 
which has marine animals, both invertebrates and vertebrates, evolving hundreds of millions of years before the evolution of fruit trees and other higher plants. And not just other higher plants, but grass even. Furthermore, many plants require pollination by insects, but insects were not made until the sixth day of creation, which fact argues against the possibility that the days of creation could have been long ages, millions of billions of years. The idea of theistic evolution is counter to the biblical record of creation in practically every passage. It really does seem that God meant to make it impossible for us to convolute His Word without simply dismissing it entirely. He made it impossible for us to embrace old age creationism, theistic evolution, Big Bang cosmology, or Darwinian evolution without simply running roughshod over, ripping the pages out, sharpening out, exacto knifing out Genesis 1 and 2. And the entire New Testament that supports the literal creation of the heavens and earth in six literal days. And so you either believe God or you don't, saints. You either believe in an eternal creator or an eternal cosmos. You either believe Genesis or absurdity. Those are your choices. In an article printed in the National Geographic titled, All Species Evolve from Single Cell Study Finds, (laughs) authored by Kerr Thon, published May 14, 2010, it says this, All life... That's animal kingdom, plant kingdom, everything. All life on earth evolved from a single-celled organism that lived roughly 3.5 billion years ago, a new study finds. That's a bold statement, folks. That is a radical statement. That is a faith statement. It's not a fact statement. The only way to know what happened 3.5 billion years ago, which really is an incomprehensible amount of time, is to have been there. And it's God who was there who recorded that history in Genesis 1 and 2 for us. It's Jesus who was the God who was there, who stands by Genesis as the true account of the creation of the heavens and the earth in six literal days. Not Mr. Kerr Thon or his friends at National Geographic. All life on earth evolved from a single-celled organism that lived roughly 3.5 billion years ago, a new study finds. The study supports the widely held, quote, universal common ancestor. We're all related, it turns out. All of us. You, me, squirrels, deer, rabbits, we like that, right? Alligators, hippos, elephants, cockroaches. Snakes, worms, maggots, bacteria, all of us, we're all related. One big family, it turns out, so they say. The study supports the widely held universal common ancestor theory first proposed by Charles Darwin more than 150 years ago. I won't bore you with the whole article. Skipping down, he says the statistical analysis showed that the independent origin of humans is an absolutely horrible hypothesis. Theobald said, adding that the probability that humans were created separately from everything else is one in 10 to the 6,000th power. And so what they did is they came up with this computer program and they put this information in the computer and they decided, statistically speaking, that 
humans evolving on their own as a separate species independent of the universal common ancestor, that has a probability of having happened one chance in 10 to the 6,000th power. Now, you know, I'd be really impressed by that statistic, except I don't believe that humans evolved. I believe that God created them, and I believe that all evidence supports that. And it seems like there's this other statistic. It seems like the chance of life, life accidentally happening is, uh, let's see, 1 in 10 to the 41,000th power. If you want to talk odds, my evolutionary-minded friend, the odds of human beings evolving, no, 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 the odds of any life evolving are far, far, far beyond the pale of possibility. And so the evolutionary worldview is that there is a universal common ancestor about 3.5 billion years ago, and we're all related, we're all descended from that universal common ancestor. And by all, I mean all plants, all animals, all creatures, all that is alive. That is the evolutionary worldview, saints, and that is a lie. It should be dismissed as such outright. The audacity, the foolish arrogance of evolutionary science and scientists and the common individual that embraces it is really staggering in light of our ignorance. We assert things as fact with astounding ignorance. Consider the fact of photosynthesis. Photosynthesis is no simple process. Photosynthesis is still a mystery in many ways to science with all of its knowledge and all of its studies and all of its abilities. Photosynthesis is still a grand mystery. An article by Frank Sherwin titled Photosynthesis Continues to Amaze says this, one of the most complex biochemical processes in God's creation is the ability plants possess to take in carbon dioxide and water with the aid of sunlight and turn it into energy-rich sugars. Most of us learned about this amazing process called photosynthesis in school. It's designed to be the route by which virtually all energy enters Earth's ecosystems. If you have studied photosynthesis, you can appreciate just how formidable this procedure is. So formidable that it still mystifies scientists. It's perhaps the most important biochemical process on earth and scientists don't yet fully understand how it works. All life is built on this chemical process, photosynthesis, and we don't understand it. The side of photosynthesis in plant cells are organ-like structures called chloroplasts. These structures contain a chemical called chlorophyll, a major light-trapping pigment. God designed the photosynthetic process to operate in two phases. Phase one, the light-trapping stage, the light phase that produces ATP or energy and NADP, an electron carrier. And then phase two, the light-independent stage, the dark phase that produces the sugars. Interestingly, one of the waste products of photosynthesis is, guess what? Oxygen, yes. 
The problem is most evolutionists see photosynthetic organisms as possibly one of the first life forms on this planet billions of years ago. They cannot say for sure, of course, because all the supposed evidence of Darwin's warm little pond containing the first photosynthetic life has been shown to be non-existent. Evolutionists are left with a hypothesis and conjecture in suggesting that this complex process may have spontaneously begun roughly 3.4 billion years ago. Remember, that first cell was supposed to be simple, and the cells to follow it were supposed to be simple, but there's not a singular cell that is simple. The idea of the simplest possible cell spontaneously coming into existence has one chance in 10 to 41,000, which is no chance at all. It's no chance at all. Mathematicians say that's a zero probability. One to the 50th power is a zero probability. And yet the chances of the simplest possible cell coming into existence by accidents, those amino acids all forming in just the right way at the right time, is 1 to 10 to the 41,000th power. Absolutely, 100%, zero probability. Cannot happen, did not happen. So evolutionists are left with hypothesis and conjecture in suggesting that the complex process may have spontaneously begun 3.4 billion years ago. Undesigned design. Isn't that amazing? That's what evolution gives you. Uncreated creation, um, uncreated matter, uh, and undesigned design and spontaneously created life. It's a complete fiction, saints. A discovery has recently been made at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory regarding a large protein enzyme complex crucial to photosynthesis. Energy-rich electrons via energy from sunlight are shuttled between various protein complexes in something called the electron transport chain or system, containing cytochromes, iron-sulfur proteins, quinones, and other compounds. Scientists are now using one of the most advanced microscopes in the world to determine how this complex functions. It's just as amazing as it is sophisticated. The complex is called NADH and has been known for decades, but scientists have never had a molecular blueprint that showed how the atoms were arranged, connectivity, for the important photosynthetic functions. Biophysicist Karen Davies stated, quote, Research on this enzyme has been difficult and experimental results confounding for the last 20 years or so because we've lacked complete information about the enzyme NADH structure. In this 21st century, brilliant scientists are using the best equipment and millions of research dollars to unearth the intricate details at the atomic level of photosynthesis. Every atom necessary, atom necessary for photosynthesis to function was precisely placed into this complex. The level of design is mind-boggling. This implies precision design and engineering with a benevolent motive. Precision design and engineering. That's what we see in photosynthesis. That's what we see in life. Did it just happen by chance and random events billions of years ago? Or is this clear evidence of purpose and plan? Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Oh, Photosynthesis, 
the foundation of all life points to the glory and wisdom and power of our Creator, dear saints. Another article titled Photosynthesis Clearly Designed from the Beginning goes a bit further. It says unique structures and rare bacteria suggest the amazing process of photosynthesis is much older than evolutionists assumed. Photosynthesis is the process of turning sunlight, water, and carbon dioxide into sugar and oxygen. There are two types. First is anoxygenic photosynthesis that uses molecules rather than water to drive the process and doesn't produce oxygen as a byproduct. The second is oxygenic photosynthesis, which separates water into hydrogen and oxygen to drive photosynthesis and releases oxygen as a byproduct. Oxygenic photosynthesis is the most common found in algae, plants, and some bacteria, a fundamental process that sustains human and animal life. For decades, evolutionary theory stated that anoxygenic photosynthesis evolved first, following about a billion years, you know, give or take, followed about a billion years later by oxygenic photosynthesis. However, Dr. Tanai Cardona, a fellow researcher at the Imperial College of London, found unique structures in so-called ancient bacteria, indicating the oxygenic photosynthesis was occurring a billion years earlier than commonly thought, you know. What's a billion years amongst friends? Creationists see photosynthesis as a very sophisticated biochemical process, unable to evolve by chance and time. The Science Daily article stated, quote, The finding could mean the evolution of photosynthesis needs a rethink, turning traditional ideas on their head, unquote. This is true, especially considering that just months earlier, Tanai Cordona lamented, quote, There is an incessant stream of speculative ideas and debates on the evolution of photosynthesis that started in the first half of the 20th century and shows no signs of abating. Some of these speculative ideas have become commonplace and are taken as fact, but find little support. That's the norm, unfortunately. By investigating this bacteria, the research team at Imperial College found fully functional Photosynthesis was already in place. To put it simply, one kind of photosynthesis did not evolve into the other. They both were created simultaneously. When? On day three, just after dry land. As long as evolutionists insist the formidable and elegant process of turning light energy into sugar simply evolved, they will forever need a rethink and will constantly turn over traditional I. Ideas. Oh, saints, it's not possible. It's not possible. Everywhere you look, you see the glory of God. Day three. What did God create on day three? Well, let's read it again. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, grass first. <laughs> then the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind. Photosynthesis was created in all of these plants on day three. Now, you should know that Darwin was humble enough to look at creation and be stymied. And in your bulletin, that stymie, that challenge, that stumbling stone for Darwin is placed in all its glory. Inside, on the left-hand side, you'll see the stumbling stone that tripped up Darwin's theory of evolution and all of its glory in the form of tulips. Tulips, or more broadly speaking, flowers. And he called it an abominable mystery. Darwin's abominable mystery 
was the flower. The flower. In an article by Jeffrey P. Tompkins from May 31st, 2018, titled Darwin's Abominable Mystery in the Genesis Flood, we find an explanation for our friend Darwin and all of his followers. Charles Darwin frankly acknowledged that the profound lack of transitional forms in the fossil record for one fundamental type of creature evolving into another was, quote, a valid argument against his idea of progressive, gradualistic evolution over deep time. Not only were undisputed transitional forms missing for the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom's lack of such fossils was even more problematic. And that's what I drew your attention to earlier, and I want to draw to once again. Because in my own mind, saints, I tend to gravitate toward the animal kingdom and evolution being impossible there. I haven't given much thought to the plant kingdom, but it's even more impossible. Not, not more probable, it's more impossible in the plant kingdom. And since supposedly all kingdoms, both kingdoms, came from the same initial single-celled common ancestor, we need to consider carefully the nature of plants. Play on words not intended. So once again, not only were undisputed transitional forms missing from the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom's lack of such fossils was even more problematic. About 20 years after Darwin published his famous treatise on evolution, he penned a letter to his close friend, the famous botanist Joseph Hooker, complaining, quote, the rapid development, as far as we can judge, of all the higher plants within recent geological times is an abominable mystery. And so, broader even than flowers, the rapid development, as far as we can judge, of all the higher plants within recent geological times is an abominable mystery. And saints, that mystery has not been solved. It's only gotten worse the more we have found, the more we have studied. It's only gotten worse. The article continues, Now a leading authority in plant evolution at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew in London, has stated in the editorial in the prestigious journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, quote, Although this abominable mystery is often cited today and sometimes declared solved, few realize that the mystery is deeper today than it was for Darwin. The more we have found out about the complexities on a molecular level, on an atomic level, of plant life, the more the mystery is deepened. It's not been solved. Oh no, it's been deepened. And it's not really a mystery, saints. What it is, it's irrefutable evidence that evolution did not occur, but special creation by a God who is omniscient and omnipotent. The God of Genesis, chapter 1 and 2. The God of John, chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word created all things. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. The article continues once again. The chief evolutionary problem with the fossil record is the repeating theme of sudden appearance and stasis, lack of change. Organisms appear fully formed with no previous evolutionary precursors or ancestors, and then they stay the same for millions of years, according to evolutionary dating. In fact, many modern living creatures appear nearly identical to their fossilized counterparts. Strange, isn't it? Nowhere in the fossil record is this more dramatic than with the appearance and timing of the diverse large group of flowering plants known as angiosperms, which produce seeds 
within an enclosure. And we find those in Genesis 1 verse 11. That's where they were created. Plants are the foundation of the global ecosystem, a key factor in the carbon-oxygen cycle for life and the food chain in general. A majority of today's plants are angiosperms. The key question for evolution is why these angiosperms appeared so suddenly and so widely diversified, so late in the fossil record. In other words, why have evolution's predictions failed so spectacularly? The solution to this quandary is readily available in the Bible, which states that plants were created along with the rest of the earth and its inhabitants during an initial creation week. Get this, saints. Complex systems must be assembled all at once for them to function, not bit by bit over slow eons of time. Thus, the creation of the earth and its unimaginably complex life cycle in a six day period not only makes good engineering sense but also solves the problem of the sudden appearance of the angiosperms along with their stasis the fact that such delicate tissues as plant leaves flowers and soft stems could be perfectly preserved in mass in sedimentary rocks the world over is only explained by a rapid catastrophic burial in a global flood also exactly as described in the book of Genesis. Without the global flood, folks, plants just decay. They don't get encased in rock. From a creationist perspective, the angiosperm record also helps us determine the extent of the global flood and the geological record, where the layers generally correspond to the flood water levels and their violent ebb and flow depositional patterns. Since the appearance of angiosperms is found throughout the rock layers from the Cretaceous through the Neogene, with many entirely new groups of angiosperms found in both the Paleogene and Neogene, the flood record clearly extends throughout most of the Cenozoic. God's book, not Darwin's, answers the abominable mystery of flowers. Now, to break down that last paragraph just a little bit. So, with a worldwide global Noahic flood, all these critters and all these plants and all these trees were swept up and swept away. And then they begin to be laid down in sediment, laid down in rock, laid down around the world. And different sediment comes to rest at different times based upon how heavy it is and how buoyant it is. And so you find the flowers in supposedly these period of times, this Cenozoic and Paleogene and Neogene eras, right? When the evolutionary scientists look at these layers, they say, oh, that's, that's millions and that's billions and that's billions more. We're really, no, that's a few months and that's a few months and that's a few months more recent as the worldwide flood subsided and the sediment stirred up along with the animals and the trees and the flowers and the bees all were laid down, becoming encased in rock all over the world that we might dig them up and find the evidence of a global flood and of God's creation. So Darwin's abominable mystery, flowers, is not solved by evolution. It's solved by the Word of God. It's solved by Genesis 1, 11 through 13. It's solved by a global worldwide flood. And in case you got lost or took a nap, the highlights of that article, Darwin admitted that his lack of transitional fossils was strong evidence against evolution. Specifically, he called the profound lack of transitional flowering plant fossils an abominable mystery. 
And scientists confirm this mystery is even worse today than Darwin believed. It is vastly worse, vastly worse. Oh, a little more on flowers. Can you bear with me? It's, it's not Mother's Day, I know, but flowers. A little more on flowers. Darwin's abominable mystery. Fossil flowers in amber don't solve Darwin's abominable mystery. An article by Dr. Elizabeth Mitchell, January 11, 2014. She says, flowers deep in the fossil record are just as advanced as flowers today. <gasps> Shocker to evolutionists, but not to creationists, not to those who believe Genesis 1, verse 11. Flowers deep in the fossil record are just as advanced as flowers today. She continues, flowers preserved in amber from Myanmar are not only breathtakingly beautiful, but also demonstrate that Cretaceous complexity was the norm for flowering plants. Darwin considered such fossilized floral complexity and biodiversity to be an abominable mystery for evolution. In other words, completely contrary to evolutionary theory. She continues, these primitive flowers are not primitive at all. They're just as complex as modern flowers and seem to reproduce the same way. Darwin considered the floral biodiversity in the fossil record to be an abominable mystery as he could not understand how such variety could appear all at once through evolutionary processes. That's impossible. Assuming all flowering plants came from a common ancestor, evolutionists since Darwin's time have puzzled over how so many sorts of flowers could evolve so quickly. This bouquet in amber does nothing to solve the evolutionary mystery for these primitive flowers are not primitive at all. They're just as complex as modern flowers and seem to reproduce in the exact same way. The abominable mystery is actually only a mystery for those who are controlled by evolutionary presuppositions. Evidence of floral diversity deep in the fossil record is no surprise when the fossil record is viewed not as a timeline of evolving life forms, but the order of catastrophic burial of many organisms largely associated with the global flood less than 4,500 years ago. The billions of dead things preserved in the fossil record were for the most part buried as various habitats were overwhelmed by the often violent rising floodwaters. While we cannot know the pre-flood Earth's geography, the order and diversity in the fossil record suggests that certain types of ecosystems, perhaps more low-lying ones were destroyed and buried before others. This is a reasonable and biblically consistent explanation of why the majority of floral fossils appear in higher strata, just as it explains the preponderance of marine invertebrates in lower layers and the distribution of vertebrates in the higher ones. God created all kinds of plants on the third day of creation week, about 6,000 years ago. All kinds of plants, flowering otherwise, were created with the ability to reproduce and vary within their created kinds right from the start. Flowers did not have to evolve or co-evolve with pollinating insects. Oh, that's a whole other study I don't have time for. I don't have time for. These flowers could not exist with their partners, their pollinating partners, animals and bees and other bugs. They could not exist without them. They had to come into existence at the same time. They had to evolve miraculously at the same time. Flowers did not have to evolve or co-evolve with pollinating insects as evolutionists generally assert since pollinating animals were created the same week. Functional flowers have thus graced our planet from the very first week of its existence, day three, as a matter of fact. 
as Genesis 1 verse 11 notes. Well, that's just a minor start in what we could talk about scientifically, about the complexity of plants, the glory of plants. Let us go back to Genesis 1 verse 11 through 13. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And saints, that's what the world testifies. If we'll receive the testimony from the rocks, if we'll receive the testimony from the genetic information in the existing plants today, what we'll receive is a testimony of an omnipotent, omniscient, holy creator God, the God of Genesis 1.1. Look with me to Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. It says, He causes, Psalm 104, 14 through 15, He, God, our creator, causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man that he may bring forth food for them from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread which strengthens man's heart. Oh, saints, it's a glorious design. On day three, God made dry land and plants to feed all the animals that he would create on the days following. The Lord on day one said, let there be light. And light provides the energy for the plants to do this near miracle, incredible design, complex design beyond our understanding of photosynthesis in order to create sugars, in order to make energy for animals. But wait, there's more. The byproduct also is oxygen. And then those animals that eat those sugars and those plants and breathe the oxygen from the plants breathe out carbon dioxide. And then the plants use that. And there's this beautiful symbiotic relationship between the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom that God designed from the beginning. All glory to God, our Creator. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and, saints, for the dinosaurs. For the dinosaurs. You know, if it had said, if God had recorded, he caused the grass to grow for the dinosaurs here, for the Leviathan, the evolutionists would have mocked. And yet, time has proven, once again, as it always does, that God is true. And any man that convolutes God is a liar. He caused the grass to grow for the cattle, the vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth. Oh, saints, when you eat, you need to bow your head and give God thanks. He has provided that food. From day three, he has provided that food until this very day. Give him praise and give him thanks for his kindness to you. Psalm 147, 7-9, look there with me, please. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God, who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. Our Lord has designed 
this world and life in it, beginning with vegetation, beginning with plants, in order to provide for all of His creatures. In an article titled, Did Plants Evolve?, It says this, the evolutionary sequence of plants is not displayed in the fossil record, even though the story is told in textbooks. At least four different evolutionary lines are supposed to have emerged from prehistoric green algae, the common ancestor of all plants. In a recent text on plants, not a single fossil series is provided to support the phylogenetic trees that explain the evolutionary history of plants. In other words, just like with mankind and every other animal, there are infinite missing links in the plant world, saints. The grand claims are laced with words like probably, apparently, and presumably. The places where the fossil record is the most complete should provide the clearest picture of evolution, but this is where many evolutionists disagree. The lack of fossil ancestors for the major groups would seem to be important, but the evolutionists fill in the gaps with imagination. Probably, apparently, presumably, not science. The evidence clearly points to diverse groups created in the supernatural events described in Genesis. Another article titled Kingdom of the Plants Define Evolution. I like it. Kingdom of the Plants Define Evolution. The evolution of plants offers unique challenges to evolutionary scientists. The simplest of plants are said to have evolved at different times from some type of chlorophyte algae, but they did not give rise to the more complex vascular plants. As you move up the evolutionary ladder, there are no known ancestors for a majority of the major phyla of plants. No known ancestors. Near infinite missing links. And the chemical relationships do not support the common evolutionary models. Major changes to the organization of the phylogenetic tree of plant evolution have been suggested, but the order of events is still being debated. In many cases, the claimed ancestors appear later in the fossil record. And so they said, oh, look, this is the ancestor of that plant, and this one evolved from that. Oh, wait, that one seems to have come later. Now, in reality, they all came at the same time, but as they were laid down after the flood, they see them in different layers of the rock. The major groups of plants appear suddenly and fully formed. The transitional species are not present in the fossil record. To explain the amazing complexity of the most, quote, most evolved plants, those with flowers, angiosperms, evolutionary forces have modified leaves into petals, sepals, anthers, ovaries, and other flower structures over vast ages. This claim is made even though there is no fossil record, no fossil evidence for the changes that occurred And flowering plants appear fully developed in the fossil record all at once, in stasis. All of this evidence points back to the creation model and the fact that plants are observed in the present and the fossils reproducing within reprogrammed limits and after their kind. As Genesis 1, 11-13 records, the true history of the God who was there Not 3.5 billion years ago or 4.5 billion years ago, but about 6,000 years ago. Well, the third thing mentioned there that God created in the plant world was trees. Trees. And so I want to touch on trees just briefly. There are those that claim there's a living tree that's 8,000 years older than Christ. But they claim that based on poor Science, a group of Huon Pines in Tasmania, has been claimed as the oldest living organism. Scientists have, quote, dated the tree at more than 10,500 years old. From the creationist perspective, 
it is not possible that any trees much older than 4,500 years could exist since the catastrophic nature of the flood would most likely have removed all vegetation from the surface of the earth. The age of the group of trees, which are clones based on DNA samples, was not determined by ring counts, but by the presence of pollen samples drilled from a nearby lake. That's questionable science at best. Traditional tree ring dates give ages of no more than 4,000 years. This is close to the oldest bristlecone pines from the Rocky Mountains, which have 4,600 rings. The fact that the ages for the Huon pines are estimated from pollen in a nearby lake means the dates are based on many assumptions. One scientist associated with the study noted that the media had run the story prematurely and that the claim was not yet substantiated. Tree dating involves many assumptions, but the fact that the oldest known dates are near 4,500 years confirm the date of the global flood described in Genesis. Apart from the flood, there is no reason why trees older than 4,500 years should not be alive yet today. Did you follow that? True science only supports the fact that there are a few trees alive on earth that are about 4,500 years ago, which lines up perfectly with Noah's flood. Interestingly, the largest trees are redwoods, relatives of the sequoia, and they can soar taller than a 36-story tall building. That's awful high. Like all trees, redwoods and sequoias continue to grow as long as they are alive. Thus, the longer a tree lives, the taller and wider it becomes. Except for men who cut down sequoias for timber or earthquakes, fires and lightnings, redwoods and sequoias have few enemies. Scientists have researched the redwoods carefully and have not found even one that has died of old age, sickness or insect attack. This latter is a common problem of trees. The Dutch elm disease killed and ruined thousands of the beautiful shade trees of many American small towns. It is significant, therefore, that no redwood tree has been found older than about 4,000 years. There are, though, many sequoias and redwoods in the 3,000-year-old range. The most famous sequoia tree, General Sherman, it's been named, located in the Sequoia National Park in California, is about as high as a 27-story building. It has been around for something like 4,000 years. To support its height, its immense trunk is so large that 17 men stretching out their arms could just about reach around it. This single tree contains enough wood to construct 100 modern homes. But as tall and as old as many sequoias are, they are not the oldest tree. A bristlecone pine in the White Mountains of California has this honor, as I already mentioned them, and it's more than 4,000 years old. As trees such as the bristlecone pines and the redwoods are still living after 4,000 years or more and seem impervious to the normal problems of trees, it is conceivable that they could live another 4,000 years or longer. They're thriving. They're doing great. They're looking good. Why then are none found much older than 4,000 years? It would seem that if these trees grew before this time, it would take something like a catastrophic natural disaster to wipe them out. This is seen as strong evidence for Noah's flood having occurred a little more than 4,000 years ago. A couple questions to consider. Since there are no known transitional fossils for major plant groups, how can scientists accurately describe their evolution? One has to scratch their head. Another, how do scientists explain the fact that no individual trees are found to be older than about 4,500 years. Third, do symbiotic relationships represent a kind of catch-22 for evolution? Symbiotic relationships between 
plants and animals, between plants and plants? And the answer is yes. And fourth, since grass is not supposed to have evolved until the dinosaurs became extinct, why is grass found in dinosaur dung, Mr. Evolutionist, Scientist? It's because God's Word is true. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, the Lord Jesus says this, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, who clothes the grass of the field? God does. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Saints, your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Thus He created them on day three. Praise be to God. A September 1st, 2010 article from The Guardian says this, God did not create the universe. That's bold. That's a faith statement, not a fact statement faith statement. God did not create the universe. The man who is arguably Britain's most famous living scientist says in a forthcoming book in the new work, The Grand Design, that's the title, Professor Stephen Hawking argues that the Big Bang, rather than occurring following the intervention of a divine being, was inevitable due to the law of gravity. In his 1988 book, A Brief History of Time, Hawking seemed to accept the role of God in the creation of the universe. But in the new text, he said, new theories showed a creator is not necessary. The grand design, an extract of which appears in the Times today, set out to contest Sir Isaac Newton's belief that the universe must have been designed by God as it could not have been created out of chaos. Mr. Newton was right, folks, <laughs> not Hawking. Because there, quote, because there is such a law as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing says Stephen Hawking. He goes on to say, spontaneous creation, spontaneous creation. Now that's a faith statement if ever there was one. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. It is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe growing. Faith statement after faith statement after faith statement. That is the faith of the atheist, the faith of the Big Bang cosmologist, the faith of the evolutionist. It is not fact. It is not science. So I comment. In 2010, Britain's most famous living scientist said the cosmos and the life in it don't require God because of the law of gravity. Simply put, that's nonsense. It's science fiction, not science. Stephen Hawking has an uncaused eternal cosmos, matter from nothing, life without a life giver, mind-blowingly complex design without an infinitely intelligent designer, and laws without a lawgiver. By the way, 
Quite sadly, Mr. Hawking is now one of Britain's most famous dead scientists. Just like so many of Britain's famous atheists before him, God's law found him out. The wage of sin is death, and the soul who sins shall die. Romans 6.23 and Ezekiel 18.4. Dear church, you, you dear saints, the atheist worldview does not comport with reality. Atheists suppose the spontaneous creation of the cosmos and life in it without a creator. Rationally and scientifically speaking, that's impossible. Atheists suppose an eternal cosmos rather than the everywhere evident eternal creator God. All truth comes from the God of truth. All true science comports with God's true revelation of his creative act in Genesis chapter 1. I remind you, a spontaneous cosmos and spontaneous ever-evolving life in it goes against God's historic account of his creative act contained in Genesis and the laws of God established to rule over his creation, the law of biogenesis, the law of conservation of matter, the law of conservation of energy, and the second law of thermodynamics. And then there's information theory. And we, we've just discussed all this information just in so-called simple plants. Ex nihilo nihil fit, out of nothing, nothing comes is contradicted at every turn by atheistic Big Bang cosmology and evolution. Genesis, the God of Genesis, is the only logical explanation of the cosmos and life in it that we know and exist in. And praise God, by His grace, He's given us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to bend the knee to Christ Jesus, our Lord our Creator, and our God, who on day three created dry land and plants. And there we close. Let's pray.